Welcome to episode 10, the final episode of Consuming Yoon. I am Logan, and I'm once again here with my friend Tim. Yeah, final, but uh, it kind of seems like we're still going to be doing podcasts, maybe not on Carl Jung specifically. Who knows what we'll do? It's kind of a mystery even to us. But in any case, this time around, we wanted to summarize the, the chapters that we've, that we've covered in the last nine podcasts. Uh, we kind of stopped here because it was the last chapter written by Jung, and he's kind of the rock star of all of this. And we wanted to take a step back and review uh, all those chapters and all that we've discussed so far. That's the goal. Yeah. And behind the scenes, what we're doing is we're just going to skim each chapter and edit that sort of silence out, and then we'll just speak a bit for it. And it might be a bit of a, a lightning round. Um, but yeah, and then just kind of um, see what else comes up. And try not to try not to dither because we've talked about a lot of this already, um, but of course there is still a value in overviewing the whole thing at the end. So, so let's start with chapter one: the importance of dreams. Uh, here's my summary of it, and Logan will react to and fill in the blanks and and enhance the nuances as necessary. So, here it is. Symbols imply something wider than their obvious and immediate meaning, including things beyond the range of human understanding. Man produces symbols unconsciously and spont spontaneously in the form of dreams. Our unconscious processes more of our experience than our consciousness. Most of what happens to and around us falls below the threshold of consciousness, but subliminal, meaning inadequate to produce a sensation or a perception, subliminal experience is absorbed by the unconscious the significance of that unconscious perception is revealed to us in dreams where it appears not as rational thought but as a symbolic image evolutionarily we would expect unconsciousness to predate consciousness which is to say an organism in the evolutionary hierarchy reacted to its environment before it was able to consciously understand its reason for doing so so that's my summary logan what do you think yeah, so just just listening to all that, the the main like theme that kept coming out was that you have this island of consciousness, and then a far vaster um, psyche which includes the the unconscious, and that symbols are almost a handle that we can we can use to uh, deal with the different concepts, and even concepts isn't the right word. But um, symbols are, they come from the unconscious, they're bigger than we can understand, the unconscious is bigger than we can understand, and then, then sort of the other part of that whole idea is that dreams have a way of presenting us with these symbols that are almost like a window into um, this vast unconscious. So that's just what came to me as I tried to just hold everything that you just said. Yeah, that's great. I think let's just do rapid fire and let's move okay. on to chapter two. So chapter two, past and future in the unconscious. Here's my summary. Dreams should be treated as facts that make sense and as specific expression of the unconscious. The psyche, which is the totality of elements forming the mind, is beyond our understanding. It is absurd to think that consciousness is the extent of ourselves. Interaction between the conscious and unconscious is a common occurrence. For one thing, we can only be conscious of a sliver of what we know or experience. It is widely understood that we cannot know everything we know at once. 
If we did not forget, our mind would become impossibly cluttered. However, we can recall to consciousness what we knew previously. We take this for granted. More strangely, perhaps, is the apparition of brand new ideas that seem to come out of nowhere. So what do you think of that summary for chapter two? Yeah, so in, in my first impression was like it almost sounds the same as chapter one. But then the difference is that he's sort of explaining the, fir the first chapter was like um, mapping them against one another. And then this one is more about sort of like how they act or behave somehow to where consciousness is this, like you said, thin sliver and that's stuck in my head. Um, and it's and um, the way that they interact. Now I'm losing it, but I'm getting this image of like, yeah, consciousness being the sliver, like it's directed and we understand it. And um, and to the conscious self, we will sometimes like experience a thought seemingly having come from nowhere, but it's coming from the unconscious. And the reason maybe that it feels like it comes from nowhere is because we, the only thing we experience tangibly is the consciousness. Um, and then the psyche, of course, is this greater thing that holds the unconscious. So yeah, that's, that's what I got from that. That makes sense. Yeah. You know, and I did this kind of piecemeal, a piecemeal, not necessarily thinking about the flow, but it, and we knew this going into it. This is not a linear book. He goes back over and over again and restates similar points, but in new ways in light of what he just described and how to incorporate it. And so I think that just will be common and we'll notice it as very apparent as we kind of go through this summary of all the chapters. Okay, cool. So chapter three, the function of dreams. Dreams depart from our rational ordered waking life. This makes dreams hard to understand and tempting to dismiss. We are accustomed to rationality and dismiss anything that cannot be explained by common sense. Ideas we have about our life and the emotional significance are not as precise as we like to believe. The civilized lives we lead are stripped of emotional energy. Others stimulate or depress us in ways unsuited to our individuality. We are influenced by prejudices, errors, fantasies, and infantile wishes, which widen neurotic dissociation and lead to artificial life. The general function of dreams is to restore psychological balance by producing dream material that reestablishes psychic equilibrium. Dreams also have predictive power. Really, this is the psyche noticing patterns that do not rise to the conscious level and symbolically representing insight in dreams. So that's chapter three. Thoughts on that? Yeah, it's almost like he went more in the same direction of like, because now with that description, I feel seated in the conscious. And what is it like to experience the unconscious? So like what happens to you, the conscious being? And so you might you might have these fantasies and um emotions you don't understand and uh and then you're sort of bombarded with them and then part of that is dreams and you would these dreams occur and they're so divorced from rationality that especially today it's hard for us to take them seriously um so i yeah to me that summary that you just said spoke to sort of the the, the like the bizarre kind of nature of living with an unconscious you know and it's just like it's almost like it's almost a, always a little bit like what the fuck is going on um mm -hmm. yeah so that's the impression i got and let me just add that you know that the function being to restore psychological balance the dreams 
are that medium of communication between the unconscious and the conscious, and they are necessary for us to reestablish psychic equilibrium, a very powerful idea that is definitely not mainstream. Okay, chapter four, the analysis of dreams. Symbols cannot be consciously created. They are created by the unconscious. Dreams are symbolic. Dreams are not disguised emotion or energizing thoughts. If you interpret them as such, you will only find what you already know. Dreams must be interpreted symbolically, and the individual having the dream is the best interpreter. So kind of a, a shorter chapter. What do you think? Yeah. Could you just repeat the very first part? Because I feel like that sparked a thought. Definitely. Symbols cannot be consciously created. Yeah, they are created that, by the unconscious. That's it. I feel like that's almost a key of the whole point he's trying to make with, with that chapter. Um, and I think we talked about this. Of course, we talked about it at length when we did the podcast. But the part of that I remember is sort of we were comparing like the McDonald's golden arches, the symbolism of that versus what they wanted it to. You know, they... In some sense, the McDonald's golden arches was a created symbol, but it, when you think about what it symbolizes, certainly the people who built the symbol didn't want it to symbolize that. And it just goes to show you that symbol, symbols and symbolism is sort of out of our control. Um, and it's made by a process that is not, it's not a controlled process. Um, yeah, that's, I think that, yeah, that, that symbols, we don't create symbols. They, they, they're kind of, at least we, the conscious beings, doesn't create you know that part of us doesn't create them the conscious experience is that symbols manifest definitely hugely important point okay any other thoughts before we go to chapter five okay chapter five the problem of types in dream analysis the whole of one's personality is required however predilections and prejudice prejudices must be suppressed Without moral relativity, the dream analysis will not get past their theories. Theories and techniques are inadequate for dream analysis. They cannot account for the wholeness of the patient. Focus on the context of the particular dream and start with the hypothesis that the dream is true and somehow makes sense. The subliminal mind cannot produce a definite thought. It retains ideas and images at a much lower level of tension than they have in consciousness. This is where dreams come from. The result is that the most decisive point of the dream evades attention. So thoughts on that? Yeah, there's there's a few different things in there. I mean, I, I just really think I, I like the, the whole point of if you are going to sit down and try to analyze someone's dream or your own dream, you need to do that with the fullness of your being. You can't just resort on any kind of mechanical, algorithmic, sort of thoughtless thing. And so, and he seems to be calling for a balance because he says, on one hand, you can't just use theories, but on the other hand, you can't just be subject to your, uh, um, you know, your biases or whatever. And there needs to be like this middle way. Um, yeah. And I feel like there was something else there. Did, do, you, do you feel like I missed anything there? Um, what about the line, focus on the context of the particular dream and start mm -hmm. with the hypothesis that the dream is true and somehow makes sense. Right. Yeah, and I feel like that ties into how you need to sort of meet it with the fullness of your being. It's almost like the mirror. It's like the mirror of that where treat the dream as if, as if it is somehow full and, and meaningful. Um, and I don't know how much I feel uh, that that is a truth claim. Like I feel like I have dreams where I'm like, well, that was just a bit silly or meaningless. But I do, 
I at least believe in it as a good approach. You know, if you have a dream and you feel like I need to figure that out, then it's, it does seem like the best approach is you say, okay, this is a meaningful story of some sort. And what does it mean? And I also just love the idea of the lower level of tension. That rings so true for me. The more I thought about it too, like that dreams come from this like land in your brain where the, you still have your thoughts and ideas and habits, but they're not distinct. They're kind of all relaxed and mixed together. And I just, the, the phrasing that they exist at a lower level of tension, I think is just encapsulates that perfectly. Yeah. It's a beautiful uh, idea that he expressed there. And it's like, yeah, you know, it's, we had these loose vague connections that because of their nature actually can, can bring things together that they override sort of the conscious tension that we have mm. these ideas can come out out of nowhere well they're coming out of that sort of that sort of part of our psyche yeah yeah definitely I, yeah and i wish we could ask Jung about are all dreams true because that just seems like i've had yeah there's so many dreams that from spicy food supposedly that just don't seem to mean anything aren't even interesting really but we have them and remember them to whatever degree it's like, it, are all of them true, Jung? Like, because some of them are just like, really don't feel even symbolic per se. Yeah. Uh, but for the purpose of, of analysis, like, don't, that doesn't mean that all, because some dreams are so interesting and compelling. And if you say, well, I'm a modern man, I know that those are bogus, you're, you're missing out on a very important aspect of your, your mind, your psyche. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's go to chapter six, the archetype in dream symbolism. Just as the human body has a long evolutionary history, we would expect the mind has a similar history. There are biological, prehistoric, and unconscious developments of the mind. These elements crop up as archaic remnants in dreams. Archaic remnants, or archetypes, are instinctual symbols. They are without origin and reproduce themselves in any time or in any part of the world even where transmission by direct descent or cross-fertilization through migration must be ruled out. Examples of archetypes. The hero, a rescuer who, when, who is devoured by a monster, appears again in a miraculous way, having overcome whatever a monster it was that swallowed him. Example, Jesus Christ. Then there's heaven, hell, or the evil animal, a snake-like monster with many horns. It is erroneous to think that man comes into the world with an empty mind. The psyche is more than consciousness. The unconscious mind, or archetypal mind, can intuitively grasp things that conscious thought could not work out. It communicates its prognostication in dreams. The rational mind and the rational world hide the demons and gods that are still there. Not knowing this, modern man treats his psychological complications with pills, alcohol, tobacco, food, and above all, a large array of neurosis. So that was a beautiful chapter. Uh, what do you think of what I wrote? Yeah, it's an interesting like progression there. I'm gonna just try to see if I can like retread it. So like, let's see. Just sorry, just read me the first line again, just to get me started. Just as the human body has a long evolutionary history, we should expect the mind has a similar history. Right. Right. So, and I love this idea and it feels central to like what I've taken away from this book. And it's related to Steven Pinker's rejection of the blank slate idea. And I, and that rung true for me back when I read it. And this just added more when I read, you know, Jung here, it added more weight to that, that conviction that we, we are born with a certain 
predisposition to certain kinds of thinking. And you could make this argument as well with language. Like we don't just soak up language arbitrarily because we have an arbitrary a thing, a brain that can learn arbitrary things. We're actually predispo predisposed to learn language. And so Jung is arguing here that we we actually have concepts that come up in our head uh, that aren't they don't come from our upbringing and they don't they they more accurately come almost from our genetics but maybe more accurate or like more directly they come from our evolutionary past and so like the hero archetype his implicit argument there i don't think he really makes this explicit but is that the hero archetype is so useful for humans to have that we actually just started to evolve to have that kind of story ready in our brains to receive different stories and that's why a lot of our stories kind of um stories that end up resonating with us are similar in this way they you know we have a lot of these hero stories and and i think the part of what he's saying there too is that we I don't know, I, I can't remember exactly how he phrased it and or how you phrased it in your summary, but the idea there that it seems to lead to is that we can respond to the world with wisdom that didn't actually come from inside of us. It came from something before us. It came from our evolutionary past. And um, and I, you know, I might respond to feel I might feel inspired by someone being heroic. And it's not completely because I was raised in a Western democracy that likes heroes. It's partially also because I, I have this evolved brain that, that evolved to recognize heroes and understand that story. Do, do you think I missed anything there? I, the, there's a lot in this chapter. One thing yeah. that I was kind of unpacked for the first time, I think, is that idea about, well, what does it mean to have these archaic remnants that seem to be like evolutionarily, genetically in our mind. And a kind of the model that I have of a brain is you have pathways between neurons and that actually is like the connections between neurons is what make up our thoughts. And the more you do something, the stronger certain pathways become. Like you learn to play tennis and you kind of develop a certain type of swing, you know, and that just becomes stronger you you hit that circuit over and over and over again it becomes a strong connection well what makes us think it's impossible that we don't come with some already strong connection so mm -hmm. you've never you could not know what a hero was and you can see someone that's devoured by a monster and then comes out and overcomes it without anyone ever telling you that and sort of just know that on a very deep level that you've you've witnessed something you already knew mm -hmm. or just like snakes right you don't need to teach a baby that a right. snake is dangerous. They will Perfect freeze example. in their tracks. How is that? Like, that's happening at the brain, right? To freeze the muscles. I mean, certainly I can't describe it, but it seems like not impossible that we would come in with certain pathways that are kind of bolder than others. In fact, probably like more than bold, just you there is as natural to your brain as having an arm is natural to your body. Yeah. Yeah. And actually I, I this is, a, I'm really glad we're talking about this because this brings up something Jordan Peterson said, which I find just brilliant. He talks about like the, um, the symbol of the dragon. It's a really common symbol. And he says, you know, you could look at that as basically a, uh, a snake cat bird. And when you think about it, 
monkey monkey type creatures are they can be killed by snakes and cats and birds for small monkeys anyway those are the things you need to watch out for mm. so so that could completely explain like why we have uh. this symbol of the dragon being like this beast and uh, and we have heroes who go and slay the dragon and it's really almost like a combination of all of the natural predators that we would have as as monkeys in trees or on the savanna the meta beast yeah and even probably having some intelligence, there's there's perhaps human-like qualities to the dragon. It's it's right. smarter than you are, right? It's this ancient being that loves gold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, like the, the the cat, bird, snake, human, the the worst of all enemies. <laughs> Jeez, my God. Um, yeah, that's beautiful. That's that's brilliant. Yeah, that's a. I've never put that together and i don't think i think it's someone it takes someone the stature of a jordan peterson to make that connection or you yeah yeah that's brilliant um okay so let's go on to chapter seven the soul of man so here's the summary notes for that man's soul seems to be under his control but the sad truth is that it is a battleground of complex inexorable opposites in the past ideas about supreme supreme beings and an afterlife allowed people to contend with their split personalities and with the death in particular. While we cannot prove such beliefs to be true, it may be the case that religion is useful. The role of religious symbols is to give meaning to life. A sense of meaning is not provided in liberal, liberal democracies. To the scientific mind, phenomena such as symbols are a nuisance because they cannot be formulated in a way that is satisfactory to intellect and logic. In order to formulate these ideas, life itself will need to be understood along with the arising of emotions and symbols that drive the meaning in life. Finally, intuition is a useful tool for dream interpretation, but one should not settle for a a hunch. An exact knowledge of dreams is possible with proper examination. One just has to get past the point of hating what they cannot explain. That's my final note. Uh, How would you react? Yeah. There's a lot there. The first part um, I like quite a bit. It's um, it sort of casts the soul as this multifaceted, um, un- almost unknowable is the the feeling I get thing, um, and and then he he begins talking about the rational mind, uh, the modern mind maybe, uh, and how in modern life we don't really have a good way of dealing with that, and and it sounds like he's suggesting it's because anything that doesn't really fit into a rational framework, we kind of just uh, discard. But, but what he's saying is that, well, our, our deepest nature is irrational and therefore we don't understand it. And we're like discarding any, any symbolism that might help to map us to it. Um, and yeah, that's what symbols, that's what he's saying symbols help for. And then the last part in there was uh, about dream interpretation where and I really appreciated this from him where he says, you know, it's not enough to just go with intuition and hunch. And it's refreshing because throughout the whole book, he's sort of cheering for that stuff, mm-hmm. I think, deservedly. But um, but it's also reassuring for him to say, but, you know, that's not enough. You, you have to, as I recall, he was saying you have to like retranslate it back into logic or understand it logically. Um, and and, uh, and then, they, then you can call that true knowledge. Or I don't know, he probably doesn't use the like the term true knowledge but yeah so let's go on to chapter eight the role of symbols here are my notes 
Natural symbols are derived from the unconscious contents of the psyche and are variations of essential archetypes. Cultural symbols are used to express eternal truths. They have gone through many transformations, including conscious development, and have become collective images accepted by civilized society, example given the cross. If symbols are forsaken, their specific energy dissipates into the unconscious with unaccountable consequences. Unpleasant tendencies can form to dissipate this shadow energy, leaving some people understandably afraid of the unconscious. The more a fearful person represses the unconscious, the higher their neuroses. The definition of numinous is a divine presence or division, an appealing emotional resonance. Man's rationalism has destroyed his capacity to respond to numinous symbols. This leaves modern man disoriented and disassociated. The surface of our world has been cleansed of all irrational elements, such as superstitions, but the long history of mental development has not caught up to this rational world and is left reeling. The main task of dreams is to bring back a recollection of the prehistoric and the infantile world down to the level of primitive instincts. So that's my summary. What do you, how do you feel about all that? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it sounds like he's saying, uh, he's touching on a lot of the same ideas as the last chapter, but it's more of, um, it's all framed in terms of the world. So he's sort of saying, you know, we, we've stripped the world of numinous symbols or, um, yeah, somehow it's like the last chapter seemed to be talking about how we each, we all internally kind of reject things that aren't rational. And here he's more saying we reject them in the world. We look out in the world and we sort of, they don't exist for us in the world. Um, or, well, he says we, 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 don't uh, we don't react to it. But yeah, the emphasis is on almost like more our projections out into reality, if that makes sense. Yeah. It does, yeah. It's so the last chapter, the soul of man. This chapter, the role of symbols and uh, going from the individual to the culture, and and you know the idea of well, we've built this rational world. We've put a lot of value in science, and in the last fifty years, it's been incredibly rapid. The payoffs there, but in the process, we've destroyed our capacity to contend. Like we see the value of rationality is so high that. You know, and we get all these great things from it, but in that value, in valuing that, we've destroyed our ability to value the the numinous, that emotional resonance, that divine presence, and this yeah. is leaving us disoriented and and dissociated. Right. Yeah, I think that's it. And um, this, uh, you know, when we when as we were reading this book, I I definitely had the experience of it impacting me and I would, especially with how I, you know, thought of dreams and stuff, but I'm starting to think now it's impacted me even more than I, even more than it felt like it was impacting me as we were reading it. I mean, the whole idea of that, well, things that are numinous or symbolic, it's almost, it's, it's like, it's not a stretch to say that they carry their own power and we're blind to it. Um, you know, whether, whether that's actually, some real world power, you know, independent of psychology is another discussion, but he's sort of saying like, we, we, yeah, we've cut ourselves off from almost like we've, we've cut off a sense, you know, a mm. sixth sense, um, whether mystical or not again, but that we, that these symbols do float around and they actually do impact us, but we, we don't engage with them. We're not aware of them. 
So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting. It really seems to have changed a lot of how I've how I'm thinking about the world these days. Yeah, me too. It's I can't tell how much of it is just our deeper study of it because we knew we were making a podcast. You know, there's part of it that's even even there with like this making this podcast feels kind of irrational too. In some sense, it's it's takes a lot of time to do this beyond just reading the book. And uh, I mean, in the background, we talk about our you know frustrations with like the editing stuff and just organizing our lives to meet these kind of arbitrary schedules that are nonetheless important to us. Mm-hmm. You know, this this whole exercise though, like has tied into all that in a way that like this has become one of the most impactful books I've, I've read and we haven't even read it we've only read chapters one through nine you know there's still more yeah. of the book but it's so dense with meaning and it's probably changed my thinking so um deeply in a way that yeah like i agree with you like i'm realizing how deep the change was um as we talk about the the summary mm-hmm and just let me point out again that the symbols, well, I mean, you've already said it well, but just that that's what symbols are doing. Like they, we still actually have the capacity. We're still that evolved mind and our brain is still giving us signals. So it seems like there's hope for, you know, someone who studies this to be able to rediscover all that, that primitive instinct, that infantile world that seems to be useful for for orienting ourselves yeah for sure definitely and i mean i almost feel like that's what we're about to do culturally i i don't know how much that lands for you or how much of like a left turn it sounds like to the listener but with the coronavirus stuff seeming more and more like just like the first domino I, i yeah i have a strong hunch which we can talk more about either now or some other time, but I have a strong hunch that it's just going to call more and more for these um, symbolic kind of uh, ways of thinking. A related idea is that people have, some of the people I follow have been saying biblical or mythopoetic language, so um, the kinds of stories or lessons you might see in the Bible, they're saying that they will become more and more useful because of the times we're going into. We're going into more and more chaos. And when you're, when all of your habits and your scripts break down because they were sort of put together or learned from a world that no longer really exists because it's gotten just a bit crazier, uh, then the, the, this guy's hypothesis, his name is J- Jamie Wheel, is that we will reach into the mythopoetic layer. So stories, you know, books like the Bible and things like that. And we'll find that there's stored wisdom there and we'll need it now. So that's, um, that's, I guess, a way that the thoughts in this book really seem to be not just interesting, but maybe immediately relevant, if that makes sense. Let me, let me ask you a question in this uncharted territory. So I think Nietzsche infamously predicted that hundreds of millions of people would die you know due to the death of god would you how do you see a lot of bloodshed on the order of maybe billions or or maybe not at all um in the next in the future within our lifetimes right i kind of don't think so i i don't think it'll be like a bloody revolution i think a lot will go crazy but i think it'll be crazy on on the order of like 
people don't know how to make sense of their lives anymore. I, mm-hmm. I don't think we're going to, I mean, you know, the world's full of in, individual countries and who knows how they'll all react. And, and, you know, here's another, here's another entry point if we wanted to for the sovereign individual, which is also predicting a kind of significant shift. Um, I do think it'll be painful. I think it's possible, um, you know, if, if our food chains, for example, are interconnected enough with all the other dominoes that fall down, I mean, I really have no idea whether that's likely or not. But if that does happen, then you could have people starving to death, you know, and that would be <laughs> painful. So, but yeah, I don't think it'll be like a catastrophe in terms of lives lost. Um, but I think it'll be fucking crazy. <clears throat> well, let's leave it there. That's a teaser, y'all, for the kind of collaboration, yeah, yeah. Logan, I want to be doing after this podcast. Um but who knows what we'll do. Stay tuned. Yeah. Uh, let's let's finish it up. So we've got one more chapter. Chapter okay, yeah. 9, Healing the Split. So here's, I have two notes. Uh, the benefits of our rational advancements are too great to be abandoned, but they're also introducing new levels of self-destruction. We have atomic bombs, climate change, overpopulation, and an inability to make the necessary political arrangements. There are no gods to turn to for help. Nobody knows what to do. Dreams provide the most interesting information for those who take the trouble to understand their symbols. That, that's that's what I've got there. What do you, how do you think? Yeah, well, he, he's, he's kind of, I mean, maybe it's just, I'm still thinking my own thoughts, but it sounds like he's almost echoing something. It's like he's saying um, things are going to get to a tipping point, or that's the implication. I don't think he really says it, but for me, that's the implication. Um, I mean, does that, how do you feel about that? It's sort of a, an unknown. He doesn't, I think he is probably saying that it's not sustainable. You right. know, we have these rational advancements. We can't possibly abandon them. I mean, to abandon that would mean no longer making progress on eradicating diseases, no longer making progress on reducing poverty, you know, just things that these projects that we are wise to care about. Yeah, There's no way we stop that, but in our creation of new knowledge, some of our knowledge can be used to destroy ourselves. Atomic bombs, you know, the energy, the lifeblood, the electricity, and our transportation is, is just releasing carbon, which seems to be warming our planet, where we seem to have no limit on growth, so we're growing people so fast, or growing people, we, <laughs> our, you know, our populations are just expanding and there doesn't seem to be any downward pressure on it except maybe like you know money in some sense which we also seem to be growing at seven percent a year is it sustainable to grow a world economy seven percent a year i mean at what point will we consume all the energy in the universe at that kind of compounding growth right. rate? Right? right i mean and, and nobody knows what to do and we can't seem to make the necessary political arrangements yeah that's not that's a foreboding thing it's definitely an obvious tension there that seems that it's heading to something that will happen and not in a thousand years, but in 50 or a hundred, if yeah. not sooner. And then the sort of like down to back to, Oh, and dreams provide interesting information for those who take trouble to understand them. It's, it's very much that conservative sort of Jordan Peterson view. It's like, forget about society, make individuals strong. If you have strong individuals, mm-hmm. they will solve the societal problems. That's right. kind of a thought that I got from that. Yeah, for sure. And, and just on that last point, I mean, 
I, again, yeah, I think you're right. I think that's sort of the implication or just outside of what he's written. Um, and I think maybe the, with the, the more direct part of that is um, that even even in this chaos, even even as even if you're within a society that's kind of um, let's say addicted to certain modes of thought and that's bad and it's unsustainable, um, any individual can can look into their dreams and look into symbols and actually use that as a, a he's again he's maybe implying just quite a bit here, but it seems like he's implying that that would be a useful tool in the face of that kind of unsustainable system. It's odd though, it almost seems like, what about the good, Jung? Like what about you know eradicating poverty? Do we stop that project because we're afraid of, of the other things we learn in the process? I can't imagine you saying that, but that's sort of what we see in the Amish, right? They're like, you know what? The technology by the 1800s, that's the perfect amount, let's stop here. Yeah. And we all kind of laugh at them and, and then, you know, sometimes see them as wise and, and occasionally, you know, moments of cultural inflection where like because of their lifestyle, they don't suffer the way that modern man suffers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it just doesn't seem he doesn't give a solution. He gives a he gives a um, something to I don't know. It, it It's definitely maybe good for the individual to do this, but um, it's not clear yet. And we're still, I mean, really, it's chapters one through nine. So maybe the rest of the book will talk about how an individual, you know, responding and, and valuing the symbolism generated by their dreams and by their cultures, how that will um, resolve or appease these problems. Because you can't just, it's sort of frustrating to line up these problems and then kind of throw your hands up. And I don't think he'll do that. But that's kind of the stage we're at. We don't, I don't see the what he's saying about the those problems right yeah he states the problem and he sort of says an individual can look to his dreams for value or whatever words he uses there mm-hmm. um but yeah he doesn't he, he doesn't um certainly doesn't put any more framework down for how those two meet uh, mm-hmm. he, he implies it just by the um, progression you know but he doesn't really say one's going to solve the other or, or fill in the details of how Yeah, it's it's brilliant, brilliant chapters. Like I definitely, this is a visionary thinker, and uh, I hope to finish the book at some point. But I think I think we've we're now in the end zone, at least for for this run. Um, yeah. Do you have any concluding thoughts? Um, only that I keep meeting a lot more other people now who have read about Jung, which is weird. Mm. Like it was kind of weird enough that I started hearing about Jung from apparently disconnected sources like let's say starting a year ago um jordan peterson being the main one but then more and more but then all of a sudden in the past and maybe it's um i'm I'm getting involved in certain like online communities so this could be part of it but it's not they're not like jung communities or whatever and i it's like Mm -hmm. now when i bring up jung people know who he is like way way more than than i'm used to so um I guess yeah. that's the only other thought. Yeah, just on my life, it's like he's come up more and more. And people will speak about him. Yeah, I, I say something about Jung and someone else will, if they know who Jung is, which, as I said, is happening more often. The even weirder part is like we both assume that we both um, have really drunk deeply from from the ideas. Uh, like it's, 
and and you'll you're, you'll have a conversation and bring up Jung's archetypes archetypes and move on as if nothing strange has happened. So that's mm. quite odd. <laughs> yeah, as if it's normal for people to talk about archetypes and like yeah. you know an intellectual psychologist from what, what from the eighties from nineties right earlier I think and uh, yeah that's fascinating. Wow, you're in, mingling with interesting people. I don't think I get a lot of recognition when I when I talk about my podcast and I always feel like a bit of an ass for bringing it up because it <laughs> usually doesn't relate <laughs> except yeah. as far as what I've been doing with my time um, that's that's great yeah it almost sounds the way you the language you're using made him seem like a prophet a prophet of our times a prophet right. for the rational world like right. why do we think uh, there's a there's a line here um, in this chapters where uh, you know religious people will like say, well, why can't we hear God anymore? We, we no longer hear God talk to us. And the, the reply by a priest or, or someone is, it's because no one can bow low enough to listen or something right. to that effect. Like no one's right. humble enough to accept that God could speak to them, which is, it, there's a bizarre contradiction because for God to speak to you would be the highest honor in the universe, hmm. or at least be approaching there. And yet something about not being humble enough to hear the message, like, there's one of those contradictions that, that must hold something true, unless it's yeah. all contrived. I don't know. But, you know, there's still a part of my rational self that's going to be defensive no matter what. You know, mm. it's, it's, it's too ingrained. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, when I hear that line, um, it just it kind of rings true, you know. Um, so, I mean, I suppose I trust that to some degree. And then I also trust my, you know, my my more, let's say, scientific modern man skepticism to some degree, too. I guess my biggest takeaway is just that there needs to be more of a balance and and that the scientific truth is not the one that trumps all the other truths. That's that's I guess that's been a, that's a pretty good distillation of like how my thoughts have shifted um, a, a bit before reading you, but especially after beginning to read him. Yeah, I remember being so resistant to that idea. Now I think I've bought in. I'll always be resistant to it, but I've also now will always be amenable to it. You know, there's this new tension mm -hmm. in my life. And I mean, maybe it was there, but it's certainly shifted into the point of valuing what is numinous, that, that emotional re re resonance, yeah. divine presence, even if I don't imagine it as, you know, the kind of the patriarchal God from the Bible Mm -hmm. or uh you know the 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 um there's no there's no particular religion that seems to capture my connection to that right and yet the ideas have resonance right right hmm. lovely well i'm i'm happy to uh to end the podcast there kind of indefinitely what we have to plan out what we do next and it may be yeah. something like this it may be something quite different more about like um kind of the cultural transformation the awakening that we're having right now possibly having i i think i'm still not as not standing on firm ground there or not standing on the same ground you are but i'd be interested to hear right. what you think about it and maybe something more like that uh who knows what's in store yeah yeah it'll be cool we'll, we'll do something for sure um and uh yeah i'm excited about it okay so we'll see you guys there Bye.